Semper Reformanda. Uh, That is uh, the title of the message this morning. Uh, It's Latin. Uh, It means uh, always being reformed. Semper Reformanda. Uh, uh, Today is Reformation Day. At least it is uh, on the church calendar recognized by Protestants. I'm pretty sure it's still just All Hallows' Eve on on the Catholic calendar. Um, But we recognize today uh, as Reformation Day because it was on this day, October 31st, 1517, uh, that a German monk named Martin Luther, deeply troubled by errors and abuses he saw in the church, wrote out 95 theses, 95 short, simple statements Uh, related to faith or doctrine that he wanted to see discussed. And then depending on which historian you believe, either he mailed them to his bishop, Albrecht of uh, Brandenburg, or he publicly nailed them uh, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. At any rate, that publication of those theses marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So given the significance of this date, in history, I thought we'd take a little bit of time this morning and talk just a bit about both the history and the ongoing reality of the Reformation of the people of God. And so just kind of get us focused and moving. Would you stand with me as you're able to do that in honor of the Word of God? And we're going to read together just to get moving uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. If you're with me here in the Center for Your Life, I'll read the plain text. If you'll join me in reading the highlighted portions, and those worshiping with us virtually can just read the text as it pops up there on the screen or as you have it in your Bible. Romans chapter 12, beginning verse 1 then. This is what the Bible says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Now, I'm eventually going to get back to this passage of Scripture as I close out the service this morning, but I did want to take a little bit of time and give you actually just a little bit of a brief history lesson. On January the 2nd, 1505, a young Martin Luther was traveling the road from his parents' home in Mansfeld, Germany, back to the university in Erfurt, where he had tended to continue his study of law. On the way, however, he found himself caught in a terribly violent thunderstorm. And when lightning struck right beside him, according to some accounts, knocking him to the ground, Luther cried out in terror, Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. There's a scene in an old episode of The Simpsons. I don't know if you ever watched The Simpsons. I hope you probably didn't. But at any rate, there's a scene in in one of the episodes. Something bad's going on. I frankly don't remember what it was. But Homer's outside. Uh, He's in trouble. And he falls to his knees on the sidewalk. He lifts up his hands and looks up to the sky. And he cries, I know I haven't talked to you before, but if you're really up there, help me, Superman. That's not quite the same thing that happened here with Luther. But I do think the fact that he cried out to St. Anne, rather than to the Lord himself, tells you a great deal about his understanding of God and of Christianity at that particular time in his life. Luther's father owned a copper mine, 
He managed another copper mine, and St. Anne was, for the Catholic faithful, the patron saint of miners. It's very likely at that time that the Luther home had a shrine in it dedicated to her. And so in his moment of panic, Luther called out to the one person he thought most likely to help him. Tragically, that was St. Anne. Yet even in doing that, he did it in the form of a bargain. If you'll help me, St. Anne, I promise I'll become a monk. I'll alter the course of my life, and I'll serve God and serve the church. Now, I've got to tell you, and I hope you've already figured it out, there's an awful lot wrong with Luther's response in that moment. First and foremost, of course, that he cried out to St. Anne rather than cry, crying out to the Lord himself. In that moment of crisis, Luther felt he needed a mediator, someone to go to God the Father on his behalf. And tragically, the first place his mind wandered was apparently to that shrine in his father's home. And the Bible tells us plainly there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in this proper time. Now, as far as I know, Anne was a wonderful Christian woman. But I have to tell you this morning, if you need divine help, I urge you to bypass her and go straight to the Lord. The second glaring problem in Luther's response in that moment of terror was the way it took the form of a bargain. Now, again, I have to be honest, I can't speak definitively to you about St. Anne. Maybe as saints go, I guess it's possible she was maybe a little bit shady. Maybe you like to wheel and deal a little bit when it came to handing out miracles and favors and so forth. Maybe she was all like, well, you know, I could save you from this storm, Martin, but what's in it for me? I doubt that was the case, but the point is that Martin Luther at this point clearly understood nothing of the grace of God and of the nature of the grace of God of the great gospel truth that when you're saved by God, whenever you're saved by God, however you're saved by God, from whatever you're saved by God, you're always saved by grace. It's always an act of the grace of God. It's never something you earn. So Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. I'm going to stop here for just a moment and speak to you a little bit plainly because the truth is I still encounter people today, often in fact, making some of the same mistakes Luther made in 1505 on that road to Erfurt. Folk who call themselves Christians, yet in all honesty, don't really know God. Who call themselves Christians, but when the rubber meets the road, they don't trust God. And because they don't really know Him, and because they don't really trust Him, they would honestly rather go somewhere else for help when they need it. They're more comfortable going to someone else than sitting down with God in prayer when they need it. Others I encounter on occasion, like Luther in that particular moment, imagine that in order to get God's favor, you have to give Him something first. You have to placate Him in some way. A very common pagan notion, but nothing remotely Christian about it. You, know, you have to promise to become a monk 
Or, or you have to promise to quit smoking. Or you have to promise to quit cussing so much. Now, let me just say, if, if that applies to you, you maybe probably should quit smoking or quit cussing. But you also need to know that doing those sorts of things, while they certainly may please God, don't earn you anything with Him. God doesn't operate on a quid pro quo. God operates by grace. And, and quite frankly, if he did operate on a quid pro quo, that would be very bad news. Because God doesn't need anything. And he's not sitting in heaven coveting anything you have to offer. So say, for instance, you promise God that you'll stop smoking if he'll just make your car crank this morning. What does God get out of that? You'll get cleaner lungs and maybe a few more years on earth, but what, how does that help God? Or, or say you promise God that you'll stop cussing if he'll convince your wife to come back to you. How does that help God? Now, no doubt he hates to hear you cuss. But stopping cussing does something for you. It doesn't do something for God. You're asking for God to help you do something by promising him to do something that will also help you. Stopping cussing just makes you less profane, maybe a little more pleasant to be around. But it doesn't really do anything for God. Because the, the solemn truth of the matter is that you don't have anything God needs. Christians don't do stuff in order to make God love them or help them. Christians do stuff because God's already loved us and already helped us. And our response is to love him back. And so we want to do things that make him happy. We want to live in ways that make him happy. And frankly, we also firmly believe that he's right. And so the things he says are always right, even if we don't yet understand why. In 1505, Martin Luther didn't get that yet. Which means, by the way, this morning, if you're not sure you get that yet, or if you've got someone in your life that you're talking to and praying for, and they don't get that yet, Listen, God's not finished. Luther in 1505 was a mess. Eventually, he became a major figure in the Christian church. It's amazing what God can do if we let him. Well, needless to say, Luther survived the thunderstorm, and to his credit, he took his promise uh, seriously. When he got back to the university in Erfurt, he uh, threw a giant party for his friends. He gave away all his law books, and he immediately joined the monastery. And if you're thinking, that's not a terribly spiritual call to the ministry, you're right. But God in his grace and mercy and providence chose to use it mightily anyway. Pastor Mer Merle used to tell the story that he got into the ministry as a way of getting out of doing work on the farm. Not a terribly spiritual call to the ministry. But God in his grace and mercy and providence used it mightily. It's amazing what God can do with even the faulty things we give him. At any rate, Luther took his vocation as a monk seriously. But throughout his earliest years in the monastery, he was plagued by a powerful sense of his own sinfulness and an almost crippling fear of God as a result. 
Ultimately, however, time spent studying the Scriptures and the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit eventually opened Luther's eyes. Over time, widespread corruption and foolishness within the church provoked Luther. At that particular time in history, it was widely taught in Christendom that you could earn forgiveness by venerating certain relics, by visiting certain shrines, or by paying for it, buying indulgences from certain church officials. And as you might imagine, the sale of forgiveness, a a loose sort of get-out-of-hell-free card, if you will, raised a lot of money. Luther, however, was repulsed by the thought that someone could buy forgiveness and peace with God. And I suspect even more repulsed by the thought that someone would try to sell it. He felt compelled to speak out. And the 95 Theses were his attempt to do that. In his brief epistle near the end of the New Testament, the Apostle Jude writes this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. In Jude's day, as in Luther's and as in ours, people were twisting and distorting the word of God, twisting and distorting the scripture, twisting and distorting the gospel. Some of those distortions were accidental. Some, Some of them were very much on purpose. But the Bible clearly calls us here to fight back vigorously when they occur. <clears throat> Luther did that in spades. His 95 Theses became the spark for what would become the flame of the Reformation. No doubt the church needed reforming. Not because it had not kept pace with the changing whims and tides of the culture, but because it had lost its mooring in the simple truth of the gospel because it had veered wildly far from the plain teaching of the Bible. It was never Luther's intent to modernize the church or make it appealing to the cultural elites of 16th century Europe. Rather, it was Luther's desire to see the church return to the words of the Bible and the truth of the gospel. To Luther's credit, he had no desire to break away from the established church, He only hoped to open a dialogue that would lead to much-needed change. Theologically speaking, the Reformation might best be summarized by the solas it championed. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, soli deo gloria. The great truth that if you are saved at all, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The great truth that you're, if you're walking with God through Jesus, then you're living your life by Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. The Reformation eventually led to a radical refocusing of the people of God, a radical call to reorder your life around the Lord and His gospel as revealed in the Bible. Now, to be sure, Luther wasn't there yet when he first penned these 95 theses. But the study and the discussion of those theses 
uh, eventually uh, led him to that place. For what it's worth, of the 95, Luther's very first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, Christians are always to be repenting, always to be changing, always to be growing, always to be reforming. You are, if you are walking with Jesus, currently being reformed in your beliefs and practices in order to align yourselves, align your lives more fully and more closely with the gospel and the word of God. And that brings us back to the scripture I opened with a few minutes ago. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 begins, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stop thinking and acting like the world. Instead, be transformed. Instead, be reformed into the image of Jesus. Over and over and over again, more and more and more every day. Until you look and think and act and talk and smell like Jesus. Your Lord and your prototype. Your master and your example. In every age, the people of God must learn to recognize and resist the errors common to that age. Where the text here charges you not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Actually, the original Greek says, do not be conformed to this age. Every age has its own unique blind spots, its own unique conceits, its own unique errors. And this age is no different. Your job as a faithful follower of Jesus is to recognize and repent of those things when you find them cropping up in your own life. Your job as a faithful follower of Jesus is to be more Christian than American, to be more Christian than Republican, to be more Christian than Lutheran or Italian or Southern or Urban or anything else you can possibly be. Whatever subculture you may belong to must take a back seat to the culture revealed in the Bible, the culture of biblical Christianity as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. When my kids start to move into adolescence, I always tell them the same thing. Don't you dare act like a teenager. Act like a Christian teenager. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I believe with all my heart, 2020 began to expose in an awful lot of people, including an awful lot of Christians, many of the places they had begun to think and act like this age, left and right, conservative and liberal. It disturbs me and it worries me to think An awful lot of those people do not appear to have noticed they were exposed. As a child of the Reformation, and more importantly, as a child of God, you are to be ever-growing more like Jesus, ever-changing, 
ever reforming, ever being reformed. If you're no more like Jesus today than you were this time last year, you're not growing like you should. If your thinking is no more biblical today than it was this time last year, you're not changing like you should. If your character is no more refined and Christ-like today than it was this time last year, you're not being reformed like you should. Ecclesia reformata est semper reformanda, secundum verbi day. The church reformed is always being reformed according to the word of God. The church reformed is always being reformed according to the word of God. We are being reformed moment by moment and day by day or we are failing in our walk and our mission. Not changing, by the way, for the sake of change and certainly not changing as you see fit according to your own best ideas. It's not that we're reforming ourselves, but that we are constantly being reformed by the Word and the Spirit of God. May that be true of you. May that be true of me. May that be true of us together. Happy Reformation Day to you. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. Your word which says so plainly, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to this age. Don't think like them. Don't talk like them. Don't live like them. Don't desire like them. Don't value like them. Don't esteem like them. Don't despise like them. Lord, you tell us very clearly not to be conformed to the age and the pattern of the world but to be transformed, to be reformed continually by the renewing of our minds. Reform us today by your word and your spirit. Reform us tomorrow by your word and your spirit. May we be as your people, semper reformanda, always being reformed as we 